Kia ora and welcome to the New Zealand Improv Festival Audio Archive. Bringing you live recordings and conversations from New Zealand's annual celebration of spontaneous theatre. In this episode, we bring you the many faces of improv. A live panel discussion breaking down the different narrative, creative and organisational structures of the many forms of improvisational comedy. The following episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Bats Theatre in October 2020. Please note, due to technical difficulties, the audio quality is a bit poor at times, but the conversational content is always sweet as. And now presenting the NZIF 2020 conference series. So this is a panel on the many faces of improv, and uh, the way that we've interpreted this over here is to discuss really about getting people on the same page. And by people, we mean improv people, and we mean non-improv people. Yes, there are still a few out there. Uh, so what gets improvisers on the same page to be able to do the kind of great work that they can together? And what gets audiences on the same page so that they can truly enjoy what they're about to experience, rather than just being confused? So uh, I just want to kind of dive into it. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit of, give the perspective as to who we are and, and where we come from. So uh, Brennan, talk a little bit about your work that you do in Christchurch with uh, court jesters and beyond. Okay, so uh, I've been a member of the court jesters for about 15 years. Um, we're a group that primarily does short form improv on a, like a late night show, um, but we also, we also do corporate entertainment, and we also do like genre narrative style improv. Um, the because we've been running for so long, there's a a fairly I think you know the audiences often have been before, but then even after the show running for um, as long as it has, there's still always people who've never seen it. Okay. We'll talk about how to integrate some of those folks. Uh, and then Malcolm from Dunedin mm. and now living in Wellington. Indeed. Yeah, so I, um, I grew up as a word in Baby in Dunedin. Um, I'm a member of Infrasaurus Dunedin, which has been running for 10, it's now 11 years, I think, um, which is primarily um, character based, uh, long form, grounded character based, long form. And they do a kind of insane thing down there where every two weeks they create a completely new show that's never been seen before and perform it and then just immediately throw it away. Um, and yeah, as you, as you said, I've been out there for a while too. Slowly getting my fingers out and you folks in here. So we're doing that. And Emma. Yes, um, I'm predominantly the advisor. I direct and facilitate sort of advice theatre shows in Wellington. I've been doing that for nearly three years now. Um, in devising theatre, you use a lot of improv techniques to create a wider, long-form show. So most of these shows that we do don't have a script until perhaps the week before. So they are scripted theatre, but they come from nothing. They come from games and playing and so on and so forth. Thank you. So, and uh, for the listeners that don't know me, uh, my background is doing uh, some work in Chicago, studying and or performing. Uh, studying at Improv Olympic and Second City and performing at uh, I.O. Chicago, once it became I.O. Chicago, uh, and performing a little bit in New York and uh, in L.A. before taking, oh, 
like a 10, 12 year breather, uh, coming back to Wellington and diving right back into it. And now I run a school called Improv Connection here in Wellington. Uh, and so I'm often thinking about, yes, because I had to reintegrate myself into the improv world and refigure out what improv was. So I'm, I'm uh, still obsessive and fascinated with how to get people on the same page about what it is. So just for fun, I would love for each of the panelists here Malcolm's already just kind of saying, uh oh, this actually is for fun. Malcolm hates fun. Anyone who knows me, I do not smile. Right, so Malcolm, drama, improv, sorry about that. No, please, <laughs> please frown. Uh, what we're looking to do is just define improv. What's improv? Oh, uh, I'll take the easy one. It's making, it's making stuff up. And, you know, we think of it in a, in a theatrical context. So, making stuff up on stage for an audience. For an audience is the thing that separates it from the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Live action role playing, interesting. Okay, and Malcolm. Yeah, I think Brendan's really got it. Um, it's just making stuff up. Um, I would say that we have a lot of rules or like forms. Same with jazz, you know, improvised jazz and other music, but um, I think that's more just from the performative aspect. We've found things that work and things that don't. Yeah, I guess if we drill down on making stuff up, there are actually a lot of things that we're not making up in, yeah. most, in most shows, right? So there will either be some kind of underlying structure. Um, it's, it's very rare for improvisers to go on stage without anything needing to true and completely make everything up. Coming into a place with like a thing that's very minimal and leaving with more of a thing that exists. How does it differ from, say, a painting? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. So I, let's let's go with that, because I'd like to define improv based on the last thing said, which is kind of how I approach improv, which is what you, you said, Malcolm, I'm back. Yes. So how is, does improv differ, uh, differentiate itself from painting? Well, I would say that in painting, often you are by yourself, and you have a specific goal, and you're going for it, and you decide if what you did was good or bad based on the outcome. Whereas improv for me is having more than one person usually, or at least a split perspective if you're standing up on stage doing it by yourself, and taking it one step at a time and discovering along the way what your journey is, and it's the process itself that is the art as much as the final product as the art. So, for instance, in my class, oh, by the way, I'm asking people as much as you can to name drop, to <laughs> name the places that you're from and all the things that you're doing. We were going to get a bell to ding it each time, but uh, everyone get a bell at home and then ding it for yourself. So, an improv connection, ding, uh, I've actually stopped calling improv scenes scenes until after they're done. Because I find, especially for new people, when you start to think of your work as scenes. You go in thinking, great, there needs to be a conflict. There needs to be a father figure who has abandoned us and is now coming back. <laughs> there needs to be screaming. There needs to be yelling. Uh, there needs to be a, a direction. There needs to be a protagonist. All these kinds of things that are quite hard to kind of throw on yourself, even for people that have been doing it for a few decades. And instead, I'm asking them to go one move or one line at a time and walk this journey together, building one brick in front of it as you go. And I really feel like if you're dedicated enough to doing that, as um, as I learned from one of the old Spolin's uh, students, Ding, 
then the journey itself will appear to be a scene to everybody else, and you'll really enjoy it. What do you think of that, Mike? <laughs> I agree, and I, I think I agree. Yeah, um, I think that all improv falls into a genre. Uh, so either you will go into your show and say, oh, we are inspired by Edgar Allan Poe or Star Trek or whatever it is, and we're going to follow that genre, or you'll start a scene and you'll find the genre in it. If you don't choose a genre, then you'll perform in the genre of improv. And <laughs> improv has like created its own genre, or like from my background, when, when we were like high school kids, like in their sports competitions, like their sports has become its own genre, where you have a certain facial expression um, to show that you're understanding <laughs> like there are certain kinds of um, offers that that you make in this genre, and so yeah, I I think that we can we can kind of default into this this like improv genre, um, and that puts restrictions on us if we don't break out of that. I think that gets us onto the next subject really well because it seems like because I've never heard of this I, this genre of improv, improv genre within improv. Uh, so it, a lot of this about conversation and getting people on the same page about what you're doing because I immediately want to take back some of what I said, which is you know having people go on the journey together is uh, a process, but it, again it also falls within a genre that that process works very well with unscripted theater genre where we are up here doing a scene. Whereas if you are up here and you are trying to have one person say A and the next person say B and the next person start theirs with C, or you're doing Shakespeare, or you're doing some other kind of short form, it is a little bit different. So I want to talk a little bit about the techniques about of how people kind of get on the same page with improv, right? Because people come to your stuff and they've seen Whose Line Is It Anyway, or they've seen a court jester's show, or they've never even heard of improv and their mom just made them come to class. What is it that you do that get people from all different backgrounds to be on the same page as to what you're trying to achieve in this particular class, let's say, that you're doing? Uh, sure. <laughs> I think I've looked at me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, going back a little bit what you said about Scenes like I do agree there is uh, stigma around certain things. Like you, how many of you have explained to someone like, oh yeah, I do it wrong, and they're just like, oh, I couldn't ever do that. Or and if there was and a say you're right, you better leave it to yeah, the Please give us money. Um, <laughs> there was a shirt from the New Zealand Improv Festival a while ago. The tagline was "You're improvising right now," and um, I take that when I bring new people in. I, I kind of trick them into improvising, if that makes sense, or doing a scene, as, as you would hate to call it. Um, so, yeah, the I think there's a lot of, everyone has such interesting backgrounds and um, interesting things that they can bring to their own performative style, and defining it pigeonholes us to some degree. Um, so if you can somehow get them to do it without realizing they're doing it, it doesn't if you're on the same page because the, you make a new page to get wax philosophical. And when you, say, when you say we make or you make a new page, are you talking about 
in the journey or scene that they're doing, or as a collective, like new culture of your 10 students? Yeah, yeah, like, I guess this 10 students would form the subgenre of the improv genre. <laughs> I, I love that term. I've never heard it, but I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I, I sort of, unfortunately, began to pigeonhole myself as not being an improviser, which I did at the start of this today. But when I am devising, when I am doing improv with my students and people I'm working with, I do also come with that thing of you you live your life improvising. So there's so many things that you run into in your world where you just have to deal with it and you just have to, like, bluff it. I was going to say, hey, um, swear with there, but we're on a podcast, so I won't. Um, yeah, it, it's bringing in new people being like, you can do this. This shouldn't be a big fear. This is you taking something from your life, something maybe small, and putting it on stage and playing with it. It's not like, oh, I'm going to be put in a terrifying situation. It's playing. That's what I always see it as. And this is why almost always we introduce people through the use of games. Mm. Right? So then there's a specific outcome that you're setting that they can work towards rather than, okay, now come in and do, do an improv. You're, you're not, you're like, okay, well, you're going to pass the clap around the circle or something like that. So that they have, you know, small manageable uh, goals that they can achieve. And then that's by the end of the workshop, you can say, look, we played all of these games. Now you're, now you're, now you're improvising. I, I love that moment at the end of the workshop or something. You just like whip the rug out of the table. And like, that was improv. <laughs> you did it. Oh, what? <laughs> the grand reveal. Yeah. I, I'm already starting to love this panel because, because uh, Brandon, what you just said, I actually do the opposite in, in my groups and that. Because when you said you, you almost always introduce games first, the first thing that I do is I say, all right, everybody go up and do a scene. People that have never done one before, because the people that are my, uh, that do work at Improv Connection, Dink, uh, they, they come in and they might have like 10 years experience when they're first coming to my fundamentals class or they're, or they're brand new. And I really believe that everybody is ready right now to be able to just do realistic type scenes where they say one thing, the next person says the other thing, and they bounce and build off each other and slowly start to believe where they're at. And if I can just end them on like one little bit of success, these are usually like 30 seconds to one minute journeys. I'm not asking them to put on a half an hour show or anything like that. But as soon as they get a laugh, or as soon as they get a from the audience or something like that, I end it right there and say, see, you can do this already. Everything we're here to do now is just to keep you having fun until you start getting in your head, and that process will take three to five years. <laughs> and then you can start saying, oh wait, I could do this on the first day of the first class. And actually I was doing this when I was five years old, and a lot better at it actually, because I didn't have all these kinds of inhibitions, I was just kind of going for it. And we're just going to slowly remember that the skills that we learned consciously can filter through the subconscious and you can just be and do all these things. So it's kind of fascinating. So how do you get in to take that first step though? You're up. <laughs> you pointed it, the yeah. old um, first aid trick. Yes, and, and right before that though, and this can kind of get us into the next subject, thank you Mr. Segway Malcolm, um, is, unless unless you want to retort or fight me on the last thing I just said. Um, yes, Malcolm. I would, I would, I would like to, to drop my opinion. And I don't like the phrase game, uh, um, unless it is 
the outcome. The outcome of the activity is a game. Because I think I think we can get into the habit of thinking like rehearsal is just you go through a series of games and you know you see on these lines anyway, questions only. We shouldn't do questions, so we play this game. Um, and I think we lose track sometimes when we talk about it that way of the intention of the game. So, you know, Keith Johnson came up with thing. I don't actually know how much I think. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the questions only came up because it had a specific intention. Um, but now people play it as a game in itself. Um, and there's a lot of conflation between those two ideas. Like if you are in a rehearsal and you want to practice a specific skill, then we should figure out how we can best practice the skill. And now I'm close to the mic. Any any retort? Anyone going to put me in my place? No, I totally agree. Um, <laughs> this is, you know, every every workshop should have a specific outcome that you're working towards. When I started out teaching, I would just make a list of all of the games that I knew, and we would play all of those. In in the order that I remember them, probably. Um, but that's not, you know, that's not an effective learning strategy. Um, yeah, every everything, as you say, needs to have a, a purpose building towards a your goal. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. You're not just playing games for sake of playing games. You're trying to work towards something. I do like calling them games, though, because I feel like games is a lot more accessible for people who are predominantly in descriptive theatre who come in and don't know exactly what they're walking into. I feel like introducing something as a game is quite easy for them to just get on board with because we all play games in theatre regardless of where you're from. So it's kind of a lower bar to jump over. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, one thing that you were saying, Malcolm, before, I think, I don't know if you use the term cutting edge or you're saying that we're developing, you know, the suburb genre of improv being an improv. Uh, it, this is, I think, conversations like this kind of remind us that, you know, as far as improv as we know it has only been around, what, like 60, 70 years or so, depending on, I mean, and again, as we know, right, in its modern form like this. So uh, I, I find that we're creating new things all the time, so a lot of which is out of necessity, as many inventions are. And that brings us a little bit into the consent realm. Uh, Malcolm, when you were saying before about how do you ask people to go up and just do scenes, I say, get on up there. But actually, that's not true. I uh, step back and I say, maybe I would have done that five years ago, but I've, because of largely, I think, the Me Too movement and studying intimacy, choreography, and other aspects of, uh, of consent and realizing that we really need to get, make sure people are emotionally and physically on board before they can do things. It's really important for me at the beginning of each of these sessions to say, by the way, anything that we do up here, at any time you can say, or just act, that you don't want to do it. So you don't want to get up and do this scene, don't do it. You don't want to say this, don't do it. We'll get into yes and and all that as part of the consent in a second. But I wanted to talk to the panel here about how, because people have been improvising for well longer than the, the Me Too movement, uh, you two guys, and then Emma, you've been devising theater, I think, since the Me Too movement really kind of launched. So this is a great perspective. How has uh, consent, the idea of it, the practice of it, affected the way that you teach and the way that you do improv? I've personally been in some really terrifying, awful improv situations around consent, and it has definitely informed my practice since then and how I make things. Um, 
I always like to start off with some kind of like a header that you were saying, like you're saying, being um, being like, <coughs> if you want to say no or you want to act no, you can. This is not me telling you to, what you have to do today. Even though you come in thinking, oh yes, and you don't have to do this. If you feel uncomfortable, you need to stop. And then obviously it tracks into like you doing slightly more intimate things, uh, body mapping, which I think is excellent, is an excellent improv, uh, sorry, intimacy coordinator tool, which can work and bring in the levels of intimacy depending on the people you're working with and what the situation is like. Could you just explain what body mapping is? Oh, yes, uh, it is an intimacy coordinating um, tip that I learned from Robbie Taylor Hunt, Ding, who is excellent, um, and he's an intimacy coordinator in Wellington. But Essentially, before you do a show, before you do a performance, you um, map out on yourself and your same partners, um, directing basically where they can touch on you. So generally, you avoid like the chest and the groin, but they mirror you as you do it. So if I touch my head around my neck, my same partner will mirror it. So you get it in your body where you can and can't intimately touch when you're doing the same together. And I think it can be quite helpful, just having sort of that clear guideline in mind. On the other hand, <laughs> I don't know if this is on the other hand. I mean, in, in any other year, Catherine Weaver would be here, and um, hopefully she'll be on this panel. And she would probably say something that she said previously about how, you know, it really depends who you're working with. And even within a show, in, in a scene, you know, this person, I might be okay with them touching me, and this person, I might not be okay touching me. And so, you do need to. The uh, you know, we need to use those improv skills of awareness. Then, mm -hmm. um, yeah, Catherine teaches it in terms of fight choreography. Um, in terms of like, you know, you need to if you're swinging a punch and you see that the other person is not reacting to it, then you need to suddenly not be swinging a punch, you need to be scratching your head, something like that. Making sure that people are ready and, and on board for it, too. There's a whole process, uh, here for anybody in Wellington talking to. Uh, Robbie, what's Robbie's? Uh, Robbie Taylor Hunt. Robbie Taylor Hunt, uh, Carrie Teal, Lori, Lori Lee. Ding. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I think it's Intimacy Coordination Wellington. Yes. Uh, sorry, Intimacy Quantity, it's got a Facebook page. Intimacy Quantity. And they, yeah, they run great workshops, and when it, and, and, and consent does become quite a lot more complicated when there are quite a lot more people to deal with. So for a two-person show, pretty much uh, still Still intense, you know, to go through these kinds of things and deal with uh, having really frank conversations and frank walkthroughs, and then trying to get twelve people on the same page with what they're tending to do. At first, I tried to connect everybody in that one-on-one -on -one way, but then it would take an entire class session. We're talking three hours, uh, so we've ended up kind of doing something that we call now the uh, the consent run. Is that what we call it? Yeah, I think it's the consent run where we say, okay, uh, I mean, this is after we've gone through a whole process of defining telegraphing, like, uh, like you were talking about before, Brendan, of saying, uh, here comes the hug, or here comes the kiss, or something like that, instead of just laying it right on them, giving them an opportunity to step back either as a character or as a human being, uh, or perhaps say the safe word, something like that. At the end of that whole process, we say, okay, Anybody who is not okay, anybody who's okay with uh, being kissed on the cheek, run over here. Anyone who's not okay with it, run over here. And applaud both sides for being brave enough to say yes or no to that. And we go back and forth until people physically get it in them, keeps their energy up as well. Uh, and we do that like every three or four classes, just to kind of help remind each other. And it often changes from one class to another. Um, 
And it's interesting you're talking about putting in terms of stunt terms because from my understanding, a lot of this intimacy choreography came from the stunt choreography world. It's a perfect map over, I think. And it's really, I think, not only been good in terms of taking care of people and making sure that we are not accidentally uh, or on purpose monsters as teachers, uh, but and to make sure we know it doesn't get hurt. But I found an unexpected benefit of it is that people end up becoming more open and freer in their improv because they know what's within the realms of what's okay and what is or is not going to extremely likely happen. Um, in, in our workshops, we've never had anybody break uh, something other than accidentally in, in a moment, uh, like a hand brushing somewhere, and then we stop the scene that happens. But for the most part, people that seem to be a little bit more intimidated in the past are out able to come out a lot more. So it's a fascinating, uh, entirely different topic maybe for another time. But um, yeah, so I, I do it a very different way. I don't mm -hmm. often think of it as intimacy. I think it's a comfort mm -hmm. and, and I guess confidence to say no. Um, so I think when people are comfortable being and respecting each other in career, like Brendan said, then intimacy that they're fine with will slowly come out. Um, whenever I do a workshop with a new group of people, I will always have a big round at the start being like, um, you can just say no, you can stop the scene if you're in the scene or if you're out of the scene, if it makes you uncomfortable. If it touches on the area that you're really triggered by, or, or if you just have yes-anded yourself into a corner, because I've been in a few shows where I had done that to myself, and an improviser came on, um, Trudy Dylan Smith Ding, um, and said that um, he's just like to the audience of however many people, we're just going to start that again. This is really uncomfortable, and I was saved. Um, so on stage during a show, yeah, yeah, and the audience was like they let out a sigh of relief. They were more happy. Well, we were all just very happy, um, and. So whenever I'm in a workshop, I if I have someone there helping me with the workshop, um, I will kind of just script a thing where I will do something that makes them uncomfortable, um, and then they'll call me out on it. Um, and and also this is with the promotion of like you're allowed to fail, um, and then we kind of thank the person who called them out and thank the person who was called out because it's never intentional, or it shouldn't be. Uh, <laughs> it very rarely. Yeah, so that, the kind of leading by example thing I found works really well, because if someone's just like, oh, you can talk to me, if you, if you, if you have a problem with this workshop, I never will. No one ever will. All right, uh, I want to use it as a segment, because we've got about 10 minutes left before we do Q&A with the audience here. These always fly by, I feel like we have to about 10% of the agenda so far. Uh, real quick, I wanted to offer up anybody listening to this later or here um, with some of those people that I name dropped earlier. I created a consent uh, map. It's a document that I had in my bag that I can show the people here. Or if anybody wants to email me, benzolno at gmail.com. Uh, it's it's a really great way for people to see kind of a, a continuum of what they're comfortable with and what not. And you can either use that uh, to share when, when you're with your partner to have that kind of discussion or at least know for yourself. I just want to drop that in before we move on to the next thing, which is talking about audience and getting them to a space where they understand what they're about to experience and uh, getting them on the same page with terminology or just getting them in the right framework. I wanted to ask everybody here on the panel, what do you do to get the audience on the same page about what 
they're about to experience, either you know, all the way from the beginning of the marketing of the show to all the way through afterwards when you're talking to them about it. And has that process changed for you over time? Over the last few years, as audiences get more or less Excuse me, I am a robot from another planet, and I need to kidnap Emma McGuire. Come with me. No, 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 no. no. Come with me. No, I'm being kidnapped. No, kidnapping is being taken place now. Damn that dystopian future. Thanks, Emma. Bye, Emma. Thank you. So, for Malcolm and Brendan, (laughs) how was that process for you? One thing that we did, this is real quick. Without marketing, we'd always be like, wow, Forrest Gump show. And everyone's like, wow, Forrest Gump. And they turn out a little bit confused. So we ended up putting on. What were they confused about that that Tom Hanks isn't there? They were were confused and very offended that we didn't Tom Hanks. Mm -hmm. Um, I get that all the time. And we didn't have chocolate there. No, so we we ended up for every tagline. They were a bit. um, It was a jarring experience when they entered a place and suddenly it was an improv show. Um, So we, we managed to sell. Oh, well, every poster we had, Inverosaurus, Dunedin's best, crossed out only Dunedin's um, <laughs> improvised theatre trip, um, which is just a fun little catch line, but um, it also helped us sell more shows, because I think it being improvised is a super strong selling point. Right? So what you're saying, to let them know an improv show is about to happen, you make sure to put improv in the poster itself. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, is improv a tainted term? Yeah, that's, that's a, I guess that's a question. I know there are some improv groups that are clearly improv, but don't use the word improv. Uh, wow. Crumbs comes to mind. They, Which one? Crumbs. Okay. They would, they would call themselves freestyle comedy. Wow. wow. Where is this? Um, where are they from? Winnipeg. Winnipeg. Okay. So there. So what? Just before you, before we dive into a little bit more about what you do, I want to know how has and who's responsible and where do they live. Destroyed improv. It's everyone who forces their friends. You know, the, you know the trope. The like, you watch a movie that has improv in it. It's just like, oh, I was invited to my friend's improv show. Or then I saw um, a John Oliver thing where he was just like, that's worse than being invited and forced to watch a friend's improv show. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the kind of tainted that you're yeah. talking about. And people will have whatever their experience of it is what their expectation is. So if if Buzon is in, is in any way is their idea of improv, then if they come and see a show that's different from that, then are they going, you know, it's that case of like, if you, if you sit down to some delicious sushi and you say, this is the worst Italian food I've ever had, right? Like it depends on what your expectations are going in, like how much you can enjoy it. Got it. So what do you do in, in this regard? Oh, we 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 call it. But like the best horrible experience. So we had like we do something that is fairly close to who's playing it anyway. We do short form comedy. Um, I think if you're doing something a bit more experimental or, or something that's that's um, a bit further away from that, then maybe you want to do more terminology. Fascinating. Okay, and then when they when they get there, and you're, hey everybody, thanks for coming, and anything that you get them warmed up to know what they're about to experience? I like an MC that's and confident. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone who's comfortable on stage loves to feel comfort in the audience. 
Um, and if they're silly, then it kind of sets the expectation that the show might be a bit silly. And I don't mean silly as in like, I'm gonna full moon the audience, you know. I mean just like, we're, we're a little bit jokey. We might tease, have a little bit of fun, promote an atmosphere of play. And that sounds like it's matching the, the style. Sounds yeah, like matching yeah. the style of what you're Absolutely. about to see is important. Absolutely. You should always, um, yeah, the MC I think has a very, if you have an MC, um, because whatever the audience sees first is very important because it will set the tone. And in New Zealand, do you feel like, and I go back and forth on this, do you feel like your audiences need to be told that what they're about to see is improvised? Depends where you're performing. Mm -hmm. like, I think if you're you know, performing at a Courchester yeah, regular show, <laughs> people probably have that expectation. But we would always, we would always say it. Yeah. Like so you do yeah. do it. You always you say it. everything you're about to see tonight is improvised. Mm -hmm. I think it's essential to say you're like performing at a pub. Right. 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 So they don't throw. And I also think like. Why would you not want to say it unless there's a specific thematic thing you're going for? Well, I guess for me, so most of the stuff that I do, I mean, I do do uh, short form with the improvisers doing uh, here in Wellington, uh, but most of the stuff that I do is unscripted theater type stuff. So we're going for the illusion that it is. So unscripted theater, right? That's a, that's a different phrasing that doesn't have improv in it, right? That's right. That's right. And why do you keep that up? Why do we keep what up? Improv. Oh, I was gonna say I. So I, I don't decide to keep improv out. I would. I just go back and forth between trying to decide if it's necessary to tell people that it's improvised or not. And usually, I think to myself because, and, and I used to again when I performed many years ago in Chicago. Ding, I guess. Do you ding a city? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I you, know a city. What's that? I know a city. Ding. Uh, I, yes, I uh, performed also in Iowa City and Dubuque and Dang, Cedar Rapids, Ohio, yeah, hot spots of corn. Uh, we, we would, uh, in Chicago, I would not need to tell people it was improvised. In Iowa, I would need to tell people it's improvised. And then here, I thought we don't need to tell people. And then every few shows, we'll get feedback. And they're great. So just tell us which, which parts were written and which parts weren't. Or they would say, like, you know, how long did it take you guys to write that? That seemed like such polished material. My first thought was, my God, you thought, we made that, why would you think that's polished? <laughs> like, that's perfect. But, um, but other times, uh, we think, like, wow, if we mess up really bad, we want you to know for sure that we made it up and don't blame us. I mean, you get, we get that even if we say that it's improvised. Because going back to right at the start, it isn't all improvised, right? Mm. Because there are, formats. there are certain things that are prepared, and mm. it's understandable that the audience wouldn't be clear on which parts are which. Mm. There's the expect. Let's get into something that we almost touched on before, and we can kind of drop it, and then we'll go to audience questions here. Uh, the yes and, yes and is something that I think has changed over time, and it's something that I think people kind of, as part of the cliche of knowing that they don't want to go see their coworkers' improv shows. That's the, the worst thing in the world, apparently, uh, but not anymore because everyone's getting better. It's like saying, um, wow. I saw this guy play Wonderwall, I hate guitar. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't be like that. But exactly. Maybe it is kind of like that uh, in some instances. So when it comes to yes and, yes and as I took it was, I would say sometimes literally out loud yes to everything that was said, 
or I would just accept whatever reality came. And my job was just to amplify it to the point where I wouldn't be really asserting myself at all. I would just be adding right to it. That's, by the way, the topic of a panel tomorrow called Yeah, Nah, something. So listen to that. Or come yeah, to nah, that. you go. Yeah, Nah, you go. That's the topic of that. Um, but let's talk really briefly on our perspective here, since all of us won't be there tomorrow. What is the kind of yes and that you uh, define for your improvisers and expect for them on on stage? And, and is there any crossover into what you think the audience might think about that? Um, I would define it quite specifically as uh, accepting the reality of what of the offer that was given, and then um, adding to it in a non-trivial. So you said about accepting reality. You can know, you can say no, and it can still accept the reality. So, um, you know, oh my God, there's a dragon outside. That's terrible. Let's go to the park. And you can say, oh no, I can't. I broke my leg there yesterday. You know, that isn't denying the reality. It may be breaking a few other, or doing a few other things um, that are grounding, calls the dark arts, which are very challenging. But the um, can you define? I'm sorry. Can you define bridging? Oh really yes. Um, oh God. Uh, so it, it's where you everyone knows what the scene needs to have happen. So like, oh, you have a secret to tell this person, um, and the audience is waiting for the secret to come. Everyone's like, oh, let's uh, just uh, tie our shoelaces and they do other things. So, yeah. uh, is that right? Is yeah, that right? Yeah. You you're putting off um, going to the step in the story. Yeah. Um, oh, what were we talking about? Um, well, while, while you're thinking about that, just real quick, Dane, there's a show called Little Big Lies, which I think this guy Malcolm Morrison and Ben Zolner Yeah, that's entirely based on, on yeah, extrapolating that concept as well <laughs> as you possibly can. It's for having a couple days from now, Dane. Delving into the dark arts, um, yeah. What time is it? It's whenever the calendar says, because there's too many shows on it, I don't know. <laughs> Thursday? Thursday. It's probably Thursday. It feels like Thursday at eight o'clock, according to my yeah. deep intuition. That's anyway. At nine thirty, show up at eight and make sure that you get the right seat because it's at nine thirty. Going back to what we were saying, um, you can say no to accept the reality as long as you contribute. And yes, ending is contributing to it in a non-trivial way because if you're like, let's go to the park. Yeah, let's. Like that doesn't give you anything to work. So yes, building rather yeah, than like yes, ending. What? That would be a wimp. Yeah, that's a wimp. That's another dark out that you should work. So the wimp, that's a, an official improv term there? Keith Johnson. Thing. Thing. Hey, I want to talk, I want to talk about something else. Yes, <laughs> let's move on to another topic uh, right before the, the Q&A. So I just, um, coming from a short form background, this topic made me think about games and communicating games being on the same page about games. Um, and so I have a couple of things that I just want to awesome. Please do. talk about there. So first of all, um, if you play a lot of short form, you have your idea. This is how really time stories play. This is how he said she said it's played. This is how she had story is played. And that can vary from group to group, from person to person. Region um, to region. Region to region, all those kinds of things. So I have a couple of things that I have found helpful in this context. Um, one is, uh, I, I think that we should try and treat every time we play a game as if it's the first time we're playing it and we're discovering the game as we play it. 
So even though I've played the word of time a thousand times, maybe this time it's going to be different. So I need to pay attention to my partner to discover how this game is played at this time. Um, an exercise that I do with my students to kind of prepare them for this is um, I say, uh, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to just call out the names of some games. We're going to get people up and we're going to play them. These are all games that we've been practicing over the last few weeks. Uh, wink, wink. Um, and then I will say made up names of games, and they will have to come up and, and play those games. And everyone has to pretend as if they all know these games. Whoa. So I say, okay, now we're going to play Sandwich Press. Can I have three people up? And everyone goes, oh, this one. And then um, <laughs> and someone would be like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll call out the layers. Um, <laughs> and then. So, um, and then they'll do the best to play whatever they think sandwich press might be, and give them a big round of applause. And I think we should play every game with this attitude. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what is the attitude that you're getting from everybody? First of all, it's oh god, this one. And then what is the what is the rest of the attitude that you're expecting? Well, it's it's about you've got to pay just you've got to really pay close attention to your scene partners to work out what are the rules of this game right now, not what were the rules for this what game. What did you know? What did you see on TV last time? Yeah, it's so because yeah, you might discover something new. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would suggest is change the names of games uh, mm -hmm. often. Um, so, like in the court justice, we used to have a debate over the game radio play, uh -huh. and there was like two camps. One camp was like, you need to turn the lights completely out um, so that people can just imagine the, ra the radio play in their minds. The other half were like, no, no. Part of it is the expression of the performance and things, so dim the lights but don't turn them out. And this could never be resolved until uh, we just change the name. And then it's like, well, we're going to play radio drama, which is, of course, where you turn out the lights completely. Um, so then it's, it's just a way to sidestep those kinds of debates about what, how you actually play a game. Just make up a new name for the game and move on. So that, that's kind of why another one of my pet peeves about games. Because like the reason you have a name for a game is, is either one of two things: either the sh shorthand, right, mm. for the rules. We don't have that shorthand because every game has twenty names and different ways of playing. Um, and the other way is uh, credit. If someone invents a cool name and they make their money through improv, like you should give them credit. So I'm always just like, this is an activity uh, that was introduced to me by uh, Luke Grimmelson. Um and then moved into it. Rather than, so yeah, that's fair. Thank you very much for, for that, and uh, and those are excellent tips. I would love to see that last that last thing you said, or this, the first thing you said about having a game be kind of made up on the spot and treating it like you know how to play it already. I would love for that to be something that happens in front of an audience as well. All right, now we're going to play a game called Make What Up, Audience, and then it's kind of, that'd be really fun. I can't wait to get down to see. I really want to see Corchester's for many years, so I will. Yeah. Can you plug something real quick that you know is happening at Corchester's? We do a show every Friday night at 10.15 at the Great. Show up, everybody. All right, now is when we would like to open the uh, the floor to questions from our audience. And while they're thinking and uh, rushing up to the microphone here, um, I just want to see if you have any, have any burning thoughts that uh, something that Emma said or anything else that's been said earlier that uh, makes you want to I just want you to sit with that for a second as we have our first questioner come on up and question us. Hi, my name is Stedford. Um, <laughs> I just have a question for everyone. Um, what is your like favorite improv structure or game? 
and why do you think you excel at it? Thank you for that. Uh, please answer uh, first. I have, I have an answer that doesn't really answer, but Great. it brings up something I said I want to talk about. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a politician's panel. I think that I think I would, here's what I want to say. I think that every improv show is a long form show. Um, whether it's like whose lines it anyway is a long form show, and the continuing narrative is the battle between you know b between Greek groups and um, True Carry or. or Whatever it is, there's always a, a larger narrative going on, and we should be playing that that story even in our short form shows. That's great. Yeah, total avoidance of the question and excellent points. Very important. Like Armando. Armando. I think uh, Austin Harrison Ding uh, and, and maybe yeah uh, says uh, calls it the second show. He actually does a whole second story. Second, second story. story. Yeah, uh, David Francis White and Tom Salinsky's book. Ding, Ding. Book. Handbook. Cool. And you like the, the Armando Diaz Suvani experience mm. dealio, which is what it's called in some places, and just the regular Armando here, right? I changed the name. Isn't that fun? I'm trying to do what you said. You're welcome. Uh, like our game. Um, honestly, it's those really, really simple, like you're just into the rehearsal and you're doing the whole thing. Like there's one called Electric Company, which I think I had one rehearsal where we didn't have any pressing shows as a group and we played it for two hours. That is insane. And it was so fun. That's where you just like, in, at a rhythm, say a word and then say another, the next person says another word that is completely different. And then everyone chants the words together <laughs> and then moves on. Because um, you can't help imagining the combination of words like turgid eel. Oh, what's that? Super fun. Um, I think mine would be the, the ABC game because it allows you to do, you can play it really campy and goofy if you wanted to, or you could do a really grounded scene, but it also forces you, in, because it's only 26 lines, to get to the juice pretty quickly. And, and I, so that's why I like it. And it's also something that can be explained to me as a long, as a, uh, I want to say a long form improviser, now you're making me turn my terminology upside down. Uh, as someone who's used to doing kind of unscripted theater style, it's something that I can immediately learn uh, whereas some short form stuff is hard for me to pick up. And the question from our audience is coming up. Hello, my name is Lyndon. Um, I have been doing, um, looking at solo things lately, which I think of in terms of using the audience as a scene partner, um, sort of in the room with me. And it occurs to me in this context that there is not just audience expectation, but also and um, expectation, like if if you warn people the wrong way, then that's exactly the thing that certain audience members are terrified of. So if, you warn, if you warn people what yeah. that, that I'm going to be wandering around, interacting determinedly with selected audience members, um, that's the kind of thing audience members don't like. But also, I think probably the um, live action consent negotiation that Brendan um, was raising earlier. Um, so in order to turn this into a question rather than a statement. How would you guys be handling that? So just to rephrase the question, how, how do you handle consent and, uh, how do you handle consent with the audience and their, their yeah, consent not, and interaction? Not, um, yeah, more in terms of interaction. It's, it's so difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Because um, we know that as soon as one person 
refuses. Everyone's going to refuse. Um, and 99% of the time, if you approach someone in a high status way, they will like, go along with it. But should we be believing people to <laughs> participate? Um, like, I really struggle with getting audience members up for our shows. I will often say at the start of the show, either if, we're, if I'm not going to get anyone up, I'll say, I'm not going to get anyone up because I know that some people will be worried about it all night. Mm-hmm. I know some people won't come to a show they think that they're going to fall back. Right? Um, but, yeah, if, I, if you make it too easy for people to say no, people will feel obliged to say no and then don't give it to one. Mm. It's real hard, isn't it? I think, so this is just a thought I had now and I'm interested in people's feedback. But they're in a live theatre show already, or you know, improv. They're in a theatre, probably. Maybe. Oh, COVID's really blown up that. Anyway. Uh, anyway, but they're, they're, you're already engaged with them. So they are already participating in the conversation, and it's a question of how far they're willing to participate rather than whether or not they're willing to participate. So it's a matter of degrees, basically. Yeah. And so I know that the, yeah, I mean, this is again one of those things that, that's constantly evolving, right? And so New Zealand Improv Festival last year had a sticker system where uh, Green said... Uh, this year too. Well, yeah, I'll call it in a second, but see, so Green meant uh, all good and red, I think, meant not. And then they fell off and it was, the lighting kind of changed what the, the sticker color looked like to us. Uh, so then now this year there's uh, like a shape of the sticker, which is a little bit easier to see, which is great. Again, all sorts of cutting edge, uh, exciting ways to handle this kind of thing. Um, one thing that I try to do is, uh, in the in when we do improv connection ding shows, those uh, those are often not. I say about ten percent of the time the scenes are quite dramatic, um, just because of the nature of the journey that they're on, and it can make certain people in the audience feel uncomfortable. In theory, it hasn't happened yet, but it can make people feel uncomfortable. I know when we are have people watching it. So we've gotten to the point where a few times where people felt uncomfortable. So we thought, okay, um, if you are uncomfortable, please don't stop the scene. Particularly if it, you know, if it seems kind of like crazy, say I tell the audience, just so you know, the players up here have a safe word if anything gets to a point where they no longer feel comfortable. But for the most part, they're doing well, and it is theater and dramatic. And if this ever gets to the point where you get so uncomfortable, please do not stop the show. But please feel free to exit at any time and come back in at any time. We will not mock you or make any comments about when you come in or when you leave. It's not that kind of show. So. Different answers. Brendan, you earlier were talking about how it's about attentiveness on like within improvisers and want to be practicing attentiveness. So I guess another answer is you have the skills to perceive the level of engagement or comfort that people want to have. Or at least you train those skills. Like, yeah, <laughs> and it is hard too, especially if the bit is to try to you know make them squeal a little bit or something like that. You know, like. So you don't know if they're enjoying that uncomfortableness or if, like, get the prick off me, you know? Mm-hmm. It is kind of a hard one that I think that we have to evolve the answers. You also have to demonstrate that we take good care of people when yes. we do bring them up, right? It's if if you bring someone up and make them feel bad, or even if you just, like, if at the start of the show, if at the start of the show, like, okay, yell out uh, your favorite food, and then someone yells something out, and you're like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> Whatever. See that all the, that happens all the time. Yeah. It's that judge, yeah, kind yeah. of um, thing. So mm-hmm. maybe 
can we can we demonstrate? Uh, you know, people call things out. Someone makes a mistake. You, know, um, you ask for a three-word title, and the other four-word title. Instead of saying you can't count for a loser, you know, like oh, beautiful, so generous of you. Um, if we can make them feel good about making participating, and yeah, participating, then maybe we open it up more to. And there's another improviser I, I, I've always respected his way of getting the audience on his side, um, Alex Barron. Thing. Um, and he would ask a question like, what did you all have for dinner? And then he would pick out, like, he, this is hypothetical, he might pick out a thing he doesn't know, and it's just like, oh, pasta. That's a terrible example. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he'd be like, oh, uh, ratatouille. Oh, what's that? And just like start engaging with you that way and that is a much more conversational thing because there is a stigma about like oh improviser talking me I'm going on stage I'm scared I'm gonna put my defenses up whereas if you just like converse then that's already a really good bringing in that fourth wall a little bit and just exactly. making more of a, a living room atmosphere than anything else yeah um do we have time for one more question or do we have to wrap this up here I think we're good yeah okay yeah. Well, uh, just to, any any final thoughts from uh, Brendan and Malcolm about how to get people, audiences, and improvisers on the same page? Honestly, just like have that as your core tenant, you know, don't lie unless it is literally like the main thing of the show. And close attention to persistence. Right. My bit would just be honor boundaries that people set up. And I'm going to steal Malcolm's uh, living room thing, or just get, getting getting the audience to feel like they're one with you there, rather than having that separation. Often it's good, depends on your kind of show, but often it's good. Right? Well, thank you very much, Malcolm Morrison and Brennan Bennett and Emma McGuire for joining us today. I am Ben Zolno. I have been your moderator. And if anybody is not familiar with the New Zealand Improv Festival and you're COVID-free, come on down and. We would love to see you. Thanks very much. This episode was produced and edited by me, Aaron Douglas, and made possible thanks to the New Zealand Improv Trust, Creative New Zealand, and Victoria University's internship program. The New Zealand Improv Festival Close to Home ran 3rd to the 10th of October 2020 at Bats Theatre. Learn more about it at improvfest.nz or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.